Welcome back, everybody, to My Fave Cure Chemist. I'm your host, Geraldo. And I'm Beck. We've got some exciting news for y'all. Next week, I will be repping the podcast at the American Chemical Society National Meeting in Chicago. I plan on conducting some spontaneous mini interviews with different LGBTQ chemists at the conference. So if you want to meet up, shoot me an email at myfavequeerchemist at gmail.com. And so this week's episode of our Pride Summer 2022 is hosted by Dr. Felipe Cerquera, who is also one of our first guests on the show back when he was still a graduate student at the University of Michigan. As part of this episode, we're raising funds for the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, an organization that protects and defends the rights of Black transgender people. So with that, here's our show. Hello, everybody. So my name is now Dr. Felipe Cerquera. I'm very excited to introduce you all to an amazing chemist and just all around really cool person. Brennan, do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Dr. Brennan Kesnick, uh, and I have a PhD in chemistry, but the whole my whole scientific story is about being fascinated with too many things all at once and trying to be the most interdisciplinary science that ever was. Um, so that's that's my deal. Awesome. Yeah. Do you mind telling us a little bit about your educational background, where you went to undergrad, where you got your PhD, um, and kind of what you do now in your current position? Sure. Oh, and I, I guess we skip pronouns. I do use uh, they, them pronouns. Uh, but yeah, my educational background is, uh, it starts, upper education starts with, um, I went to college at University of Colorado Boulder, which is a good compromise of being uh, in-state. So I got cheap tuition, but also got to like move an, an hour drive away from home. And I remember I initially picked my major by making a list of all of the majors I was interested in, closing my eyes and pointing. Uh, so I started out as a geology major at C Boulder and over my freshman and sophomore years just found myself more and more drawn to uh, the chemical aspects of geology and eventually switched to a chemistry major. And I still uh, finished a geology minor because I love rocks. And after that, I got to um, my senior year of college and had been working in various combinations of volunteering and working in research labs while I was an undergrad. And decided that I liked research enough to apply to graduate school and wound up moving to Seattle after I graduated to uh, attend grad school at the University of Washington in Seattle. And I guess the, I don't know if we're getting more into this later, but this is actually one point where uh, my queerness became, uh, I don't want to say obstacle, became a factor in choosing where to relocate to because when I was looking at graduate schools, I had my little spreadsheet of schools I was interested in. And one of the columns on it was, does the state protect LGBTQ workers' rights? Is that something I'd be fired for? And this was in 2015. And I'm afraid to say there were several states on that list where the where, where I could be fired for being queer. Um, so I would say there, that as a large part of the reason I wound up in Washington state, which is, um, you know, if you're in the city, it's a decent place to be queer. So I wound up trying to combine my interests in geology and chemistry and my PhD projects and wound up studying how the organic molecules present in clay can change how water filters through that clay. And 
I graduated in the, in the way, way at the beginning of the pandemic. So I, these dates are now seared into my memory. Uh, Washington State went into lockdown on uh, March 14 or 15, and my thesis was due on April 9th. And I just remember hearing about the lockdown and having this gut feeling of, oh, this is not going to be over by the time I got to get my thesis in. So I just, I went back to my office the night before the lockdown went into effect and just packed up all of my stuff. And unfortunately, it turned out to be a good instinct because I wound up defending my thesis from home in, in May, 2020. I graduated officially in June, 2020 and was kind of at a, at a crossroads because no one was hiring at this time. Um, I had been getting a ton of, I had, a, I had made it my goal my last like six months of grad school to try and apply to one or two jobs per week. But I did, but I was getting a lot of emails back that were just like, we're in a hiring freeze, we're in a hiring freeze, we're in a hiring freeze, we're in a hiring freeze. Um, and so wound up doing, uh, just sort of diverting. And I took an AmeriCorps position in Southwest Washington. Um, and I spent a year um, hacking through Blackberry and, uh, finding invasive plants and sometimes I killed the invasive plants and so that was a big a big change um, but I also was lucky enough to have a very flexible boss and when I was out for an injury for most of the winter and like couldn't be out there planting trees I had the opportunity to just uh, get my get my hands into our uh, GIS data learned a bunch about GIS software learned how like I had taught myself how to write basic Python scripts in grad school for data stuff and wound up being able to translate those skills into manipulating GIS data. So that was, that was fun. Um, but AmeriCorps doesn't pay very well, <laughs> which obviously is the reason why I decided to take another term as an AmeriCorps uh, after finishing up that term. But this pivoted, it, it got me out of the field and um, that second term was working remotely with the National Park Service on invasive species in aquatic environments. And as of right now, it looks like I'm going to do that again, starting in October. Now I've been learning stuff about uh, freshwater and marine ecology, super down with it. There's a lot of chemistry that happens in water. It's, it's great, it's a lot of fun. Awesome, thank you so much. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your experience with AmeriCorps. Can you kind of compare and contrast that with other more traditional academic postdocs or industry postdoc? I guess besides the, the salary, which is a big deal. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> it's yeah. not good. Uh, it, it's also the, the pay has improved a lot um, between my first AmeriCorps term that started in 2020 and then the one that I started in 2021. There was like the equivalent of a $5 per hour increase because of some early Biden administration uh, changes, uh, which so grateful for that it makes paying rent a lot easier. Yeah, so actually, it's funny you say the postdoc thing because my boss at the at the National Park Service jokingly calls me her postdoc, <laughs> uh, and I would say it, it's certainly different because it's not I'm not actively doing scientific research. I mostly function as a science communicator, where I'm doing deep dives on a particular invasive species and turning that information into uh, just like a one page long summary of here's what the species looks like, here's what its life cycle is, here's what, what, out, what to watch out for, here's how to deal with it if you find it in your park, and then we just make that information available to um, park managers. Um, so it's not 
yeah, a lot less traditional, but it's also been really flexible. And I think a lot of this comes down to just my supervisors being who they are as people where all of them have been very willing to, to listen to me calling them up and being like, hey, so I had this idea, can I do this? Um, so I was able to build an interactive science activity that was, I designed to demonstrate how people transport invasive species across the ocean on their boats. And, um, so shout out to all my supervisors for being really flexible and letting me <laughs> you know, come up with my own projects. Yeah, it really is a deal breaker having really supportive mentors around you. It can really make an experience really awesome or really not awesome. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I'm as grateful as you for my supervisors as well. Okay, yeah, so you talked a little bit about your how you chose your major in that very innovative uh, technique that I guess worked for you. Uh, can we maybe rewind the clock a little bit and can you tell us how you first got into either science, you know, geo, chemistry, yeah, before college. Sure. This is a fun one because basically as far back as I can remember, I have been fascinated with the natural world. Um, like I think I went through the usual phase that you go through when you're five and you get obsessed with dinosaurs and all that. And like, I, I actually found this when I was cleaning out my room at my mom's house recently. There, I had these little books of facts about space and I remember being like eight or nine, just reading them obsessively. And like, I could, there was, there was definitely a period of a few years there where like, I could tell you what the surface temperature of the sun was. And I could tell you what the surface temperature of any planet, in the solar system you're curious about. So I just read those books about space over and over and over again. Now, the, the funny thing about that is that when I told people I was going to do a science major in college, a lot of them were very surprised because I'm also an artist. I like actually have some right here, I'm embroidering. Uh, something for a friend. I, I think I was more, I don't know if notoriety is the right word, but like among my friends in uh, K-12, I was more known for uh, being able to draw things and write things well versus like do science. But uh, when I was looking at college majors and I was like, what do I want to immerse myself in? It's that. Oh yeah. And then the other thing was I actually uh, remember heavily weighing going into a music major because um, I play viola I played viola in my high school orchestra and was like super into it. And I continue to play now in community orchestras and wound up deciding not to pursue that because of the combination of drama and my performing arts circles in high school and also just like uh, chronic pain, which is something I can talk about later. But that was another uh, factor that also got decided, made me decide I needed to divert from doing field work. <laughs> at the end of my previous American return. It's like, this is fun. It's been amazing for my mental health. It is killing my body. Awesome, thanks. Yeah, so first of all, I, yeah, I didn't know that you played viola. So I play French horn and also nice. play in some community orchestras where I live. So interesting. Yeah. Looking for a new one in, down in Texas now? Yep, sure nice. am. All right. Oh yeah. You, the header, one of the headers of your website is about scotch tape. Can yes. you just please tell us about your love for scotch tape and why that's, yep, yeah, just why? 
Absolutely. Um, so when I was in grad school, I did a ton of atomic force microscopy, which if you're not familiar with, is basically the equivalent, let's see how to describe this up. I like to use visual aids for describing this. Um, it's basically the equivalent of tapping along the ground and finding topography changes with, yeah, with <laughs> that gesture, with, with um, your little stick. Um, so my, my advisor would call it, it's, it's the instrument where you're a very tiny blind guy with a stick that's tapping along and finding the curve of the sidewalk. Um, so it's really fantastic for finding uh, really small details. Like I was regularly imaging things that were a few microns across. I would like my images would be five by five microns or smaller a lot of the time. Um, I actually had to use a separate atomic force microscope to get images that were 20 microns across they're really primed for for teeny tiny little things um and when you're doing atomic force microscopy you're talking about incredibly tiny changes in the topography like i was measuring changes as like sub nanometer changes in topography at times uh which was hard on the squishy stuff i was imaging but it's possible. Uh, and in order to do that accurately, you want to have as flat of a surface to put your sample on as possible. And for that, we used mica, which is a really fun mineral that's, uh, if, if you look at mica, it's basically like a, a sheaf of paper, except that the paper is super thin and it's made of silica instead of uh, paper. But you can take scotch tape, and this is kind of the same way that graphene was made, actually, because you can, um, Graphite also has that sort of stacked sheaf of paper thing. So you can rub your piece of scotch tape on your mica and peel it off. And if you do it just right, you rip off a few layers of the, of the top of the mica and you get this beautiful, pristine, clean, flat surface to put your um, microscope samples on. And I just adored the contrast when I was buying my supplies. I would put in an order and there would be just you know, here, I need $600 of super expensive um, AFM probes. And also, please get me a roll of scotch tape. And I think, I think that was sort of emblematic of the science I did as a whole, because like our, in our lab, we had like our um, vacuum chamber, and we would put light sensitive things in there. So we just covered it in duct tape and tinfoil. And <laughs> I just, I, I love that contrast. Yeah, me too. So I am, a, or I guess was, a protein crystallographer. And while I didn't do this, and this was definitely like a very archaic technique, uh, crystallographers would have cats and their whiskers would shed. So they would take those whiskers and that's how they'd manipulate protein crystals and, and wells. Now we have, you know, nylon loops and stuff that are really small that we can do that. Um, nice. Yeah, so we have, you know, $100,000 equipment and then like cat whiskers <laughs> or like that. plastic wrap. Yeah. Um, awesome. Um, so you were a little modest about your PhD. You got this really cool and competitive NSF grant. Could you tell us um, what it is, why um, you thought to apply to it? and maybe even give some advice for those interested in applying? Sure, yeah. So I, um, a lot of my graduate school was funded through the NSF, what is it, the Graduate Research 
fellowship program. Yeah, that's the, the, the GERFPA, as I like to call it, uh, which is, as you said, a really competitive application process. And I think they've changed some of how it works now. Um, but you basically write a, a personal statement that, frankly, I recycled a lot of my personal statement from my applications to grad school for. And then you also submit a research proposal that sort of follows NSF format. So it's in that way, it's kind of like practice for applying to more grants. Uh, if you say in science, you have to write NSF grants. And I wanted to aim for it because it would really free up a lot of money that um, my supervisor would not have to spend on me because they covered, I believe, tuition and um, the grad student stipend. It was a fairly generous stipend too. Like it was more, like a, a little bit more than would get as just a, as a TA or RA at UW. Um, and so I wanted to be able to have the, that kind of freedom to not have to teach uh, and just like dedicate myself to uh, doing the research. And it did come through, but it was a winding road. Um, so I applied when it was still, they would still allow you to apply two years in a row. And the first time I applied was my first year of grad school and I got on I guess the, the, the wait list, they're like, hey, this is an honorable mention. You did really well, but we don't have money and decided to should go to something else. And then the second year, it happened again. They're like, thank you for applying. You're on, you get an honorable mention again. And I was just like, oh, fine. Like, whatever, I tried, I'll deal with it. Um, and then like several months later, I got an email that I legitimately thought might be fake. Uh, Cause they're like, hey, actually uh, we have one of these and you are on the honorable mention list. Do you want it? And like, I remember I saw that email like right before I went to bed and I was late and I was tired and I was like, I don't have the brain power to judge if this is spam or not. So I opened up again the next morning and like actually logged into my uh, application. I was like, oh, this is real. Uh, I was super pumped, very excited. And yeah, I, I was really happy to have that freedom. Uh, and, you know, it's a nice line on your resume too. Uh, and one thing that helped a lot when I was applying for this is uh, the chemistry program had a grant writing class in the fall that was designed to help people write their applications. And like we did a mock round of like how the applications be judged. So like they, they set us up with, okay, here's how it be judged. Uh, we came to campus on a Saturday, they brought us donuts and we got sat around in one of the conference rooms and did um, a, mock, a, a mock judgment round on everyone's uh, proposals. So that was really, really helpful and was a good way to winnow out what you did and did not want to say. Yeah, and I think in general, that's a really good strategy for not even grants, but just in general, any writing is to oh, yeah. um, pass it to collaborators, trusted friends that are willing to, you know, be nice about it, but also give you constructive criticism. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did the same thing and that definitely helped me. Um, yeah, so a couple more questions. So. Um, you talked about it a little bit when you were talking about which school you were going to choose, but what other ways did your queer identity affect your journey in science um, overall? Oh boy. Um, so this, this I'm going to take the, for some reason I always use this word, um, but there's, there, the queerness is tied in with gender identity and with my ethnic and racial background as well. It's like you can never fully untangle those things. 
Um, so like my first, the problem is like, okay, so I'm, I am trans masculine uh, and I did not start, I did not admit to myself that that was probably a thing that I was until the summer before I started grad school. And I began socially transitioning in grad school and did not do any medical transitioning until like the last, last year that I was in grad school. Um, so I grew up with people around me thinking that I was female and me going, I guess, like, it's not like I seem to have any other options here. Uh, and so I started experiencing sexism in science very early on, um, where it's just like in my hard science classes, like my AP physics class, and I had this incredible opportunity to take a computer engineering course in high school. Uh, like I would be one of maybe two three uh, non-male students out of a class of 20. So that sucked. And I think even very early on, I took a shop class in middle school and uh, I was working with the only other non-male <laughs> student in the course and we were building bottle rockets and seeing how high we could make them go. And we built the rocket that went the highest up and had the instructor tell us that, oh, I think they, the person timing it um, delayed it a little bit because your girls wanted to make it seem like look better. And it's just like, excuse me. <laughs> and like, I saw that happen again and again, where like my AP physics course, we built um, little suspension bridges out of, out of thin wood and then would hang uh, bags of sand from them to see how strong we made them. And mine did extremely well. And when I wrote my results up on the board, I had a couple of students in the class accuse me of making up the numbers saying, there's no way you did that one. It's like, maybe I looked at suspension bridges and built one. <laughs> so that's been really frustrating. Uh, compounded with, I looked like a butch lesbian when I was in high school and had people make a lot of weird comments about that. Like not specifically in science context, but it definitely affected my overall ability to focus and think because it was just like, I'm, people are being really weird about the fact that I look gay. Because uh, this was, I think some of these comments even happened before I like registered myself that I wasn't straight. And it was just like, I guess I looked the part and it was very weird to encounter so much resistance. Yeah, so it was, it's been weird. Gender is weird. I don't, if anyone knows what a gender is, please God tell me because I don't. Uh, yeah, and I think that that pattern of being a gender minority has really just continued since then because uh, my arts and sciences chemistry cohort in college was very small. Like most people in my classes were chemical engineers. So there were only like, I think, 18 uh, people in the arts and sciences chemistry major. And I think at my graduation, I looked around and was like, oh my God, I think I'm like one of the only non-male students here. How did this happen? And it took until my senior year of college when I started working in a new lab where I finally met other queer chemists. It was the first time that it happened after being in chemistry school for four years. And it was very liberating. It's like, oh, people can do this. Okay. Okay, because like I think the entire, almost the entire lab was gay. It was it was amazing. I mean, okay, I, entire lab was like four grad students, but three of them, <laughs> like like yeah. So that was that was um, that was mind blowing for me. It was like the first time I had interacted with queer people in my field, and it gave me a lot more ability to see myself doing grad school. 
So that was that was very exciting. Uh, now in grad school is when I started getting more into um, advocacy and diversity initiatives. And uh, when I look back on it, like the distribution of time that I put into like the traditional grad school parts of grad school, like studying and doing research and taking classes and doing doing all the things like there was that, but then I was also pouring tons of time into advocating for queer people on campus and in STEM specifically. So I joined my, uh, like, like a friend, Nick, um, restarted our UW chapter of Out in STEM. And I got involved and was like on the board of our first year there. And then was president the year after that. And so I poured so much time into setting up uh, networking events and getting mental health workshops started and all of that um, that I could see wasn't happening with uh, my non-queer <laughs> classmates who are just doing the research. And, and there is always a part of me that will wonder if I like didn't publish as much as I intended to because I was spending so much time on that. But at the same time, I was like, I didn't feel like I had an option to not. Like I intentionally did not run for a board position again my last year because I was like, I am going to be so busy. I am intending to graduate this year. I don't have time for this. And I still wound up putting time into developing and running a workshop on how to be an ally. And I ran that like three times over the course of that last year. Um, so it's like, I can't stop. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's this, it, it's this bigger discussion of how are your service hours counted in academia, where there's been a bigger push to get um, service as a, as a higher, give it more recognition when you're applying for tenure and all that, because um, minority people are going to feel more of a need to do it than those who aren't. And we need to be recognized for that instead of having it be detrimental. It's like, oh, you didn't publish as much. It's like, well, because I was advocating for others, mentoring others who are like, I think I may have gotten a little off track, but. No, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I would like to, if I may kind of add to that and that the whole, cause I, even though we're in very different fields, I actually got the same sort of thing when I was doing my advocacy work. A lot of my mentors were like, you're doing a lot of hours this, is this really like needed in order for you to graduate? Is this a productive, like, way that you're spending your time and I find that really um like racist in some ways and homophobic in in my circumstance because they it completely while yes service is really great and I did do it for a lot of selfless reasons but I also did it for some selfish reasons I doing those how to be an ally workshops not only make things better for people who are like me, but also for myself. So yes. I would argue that creating a safe space, not a safe space, but just a, a space where someone like me can be scientific and engage with academia is an absolutely like great way to spend your time. And those who don't need to are just really privileged in that way, in that yeah. They don't, they can just abstain and focus on the science, but I can never do that when I walk in the room. There's certain identities that people are going to immediately attribute to me. And it's not, I'm not getting a lot of, you know, help from my white straight um, allies, quote unquote. Yeah. 
to kind of dismantle that thought process. Yeah, absolutely. I feel that. Yeah. So um, we always end with these two last questions. Um, so firstly, who is your chemistry or science role model? Um, I think uh, that changes on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, <laughs> but overall, Ben Bars is a professor, I think, at one of the UC system. Uh, it's like the only trans guy I had ever heard of to be in a tenure track position at uh, university. I actually opened my <laughs> NSF personal statement with a quote from him that was like, he had overheard people talking about how his research just isn't as good. And it's like, that's my dead name. Uh, <laughs> and just like that exposure to sexism and science and like that really struck a deep chord with me when I was like wrestling with changing my own name legally and being like, how do I process this? Because one thing I was absolutely terrified of when I had an obviously feminine name was like, are people going to automatically dismiss me for my accomplishments because of my name? Like they're not even gonna know they're doing it. They're just gonna do it because they're sexist on the inside. Um, and so I really admired him for being able to transition and stay in science and like do do the dang thing. Cause it's just like, frankly, with the amount of time in my life that I've had to dedicate to medically and socially transitioning over the last few years has been such that I have not. Oh, also the pandemic. Did I mention the massive trauma that we're all that we all went through and are continuing to go through? That hit me really hard. Um, like all of that combined, it has been a large reason of why I didn't choose to pursue a traditional postdoc after grad school. It's just like I just like I need so many more hours in the day to do these other things. So just major props to Ben Bars. And lastly, where can people find you on social media if they want to connect with you? Uh, oh boy. So I don't really use a lot of social media. I do have an Instagram that I log on to occasionally and post up uh, just like art pieces and crafty things I do, which is uh, doctoral underscore gremlin. Uh, you can, or, oh, there's no underscore. It's just doctoral gremlin, I think. One of those is me. If you see a bunch of uh, embroidery with swear words in it, that one's me. Uh, yeah, so that's that's where I'm at. Um, and uh, of course you can always visit my website, which is mostly up there for professional things. I spend a lot of time going back and forth on how personal I want to be on it. Uh, that is just blkesnick.com, uh, B-L-K-E-S-S-E-N-I-C-H.com. Yeah, I definitely encourage everyone to at least look at your website. Um, it's really, really cool. Thank you. Um, yeah, so thank you so much for being on my fave Queer Chemist. Yeah, thank you for the interview. It's a lot of fun. Thank you so much to all who donated to week three of MFQC Pride Summer supporting Black and Pink. The GoFundMe for this week's episode supporting the Marsha P. Johnson Institute will close on Friday, August 26th next week. So please go and get your donations in before then. Thank you all so much for your continued support with the show. As we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, next week is the American Chemical Society National Meeting in Chicago. There are a few events we want to advertise and encourage y'all to go to if you'll be at ACS. The first is the Barriers and Resolutions for Maintaining Your LGBTQ Plus Identity in STEM session. That's happening on Tuesday, August 23rd from 8 to noon. The second event is the Scientific Presentations and Panel Discussion by Representative and Industrial LGBTQ Plus Chemists. 
also from 8 to noon on Tuesday, August 23rd. So please go out and support all the LGBTQ plus chemists who will be at ACS next week. We hope you are staying safe and healthy out there. Please remember to follow the nomination form on our Twitter if you're interested in being interviewed for the show. And you can follow us at MFQCPOT. Take care, everybody, and stay safe. We'll see you soon. Bye. Adios. Mm-hmm.